Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Wonderful to be with you to continue in our series in Matthew uh, we're looking at Matthew 12, and uh, consequently, last week, Brian spoke to us about <clears throat> Jesus' invitation to uh, come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden, and uh, that the Sabbath, that Jesus can assure people into Sabbath rest. And today, uh, we're going to look at more on that same topic. Matthew, when uh, one of the writers or authors of uh, this uh, account of Jesus' life, puts these scenarios, these interactions all together because I think he is trying to tell us something and they each give us a different way of looking into, peering into this mystery about Jesus and the Sabbath. So um, <clears throat> hopefully we'll be able, I'll be able to give you some clarity on that and uh, God will lead us together into a deeper experience of Sabbath rest. All right. Uh, the year was 2001. I was a uh, broke, hungry college student and I received in this time my first credit card. Uh, this might not seem like a big deal to you, but you know, uh, it was a big deal for me. I was excited, not simply because I didn't have credit history and finally I could start to you know, establish myself. I wasn't really worried about FICO scores and stuff like that. You know what I wanted? I wanted stuff without paying money. All right, that's what the credit card meant. It meant financial experiences without having to wait, no more delayed gratification. All right, and then the card had rewards. Wait, wait, you mean I can spend money that I don't have and get free stuff? That's right, baby, yeah. So I got one of these airline cards and it came and I unwrapped it and whatever. Uh, and then it came with this thick book. Anyone ever try to read that little book that comes with a credit card? The book is full of rules, restrictions, and regulations. I was like, wait, I thought this was gonna be financial freedom. Now I've got interest payments. I got, you know, the, the, the frequent flyer miles can only uh, get certain points on certain things. What? I thought it was like cash back on every purchase. Then when you actually try to redeem the miles, there's like blackout dates. Blackout dates? This don't make any sense. I'm trying to go to Cancun. <laughs> so at the end, you know, I thought I was going to experience freedom, but I felt shackled. I, had, I was hemmed up. I couldn't go where I wanted to go. I couldn't do what I wanted to do. And then I got my first bill. Well, you can imagine the burden, the anxiety of paying off the bill and the interest and dealing, dealing with all the things. Listen, today we're going to consider how the Jewish practice of the Sabbath was something like my experience of a credit card. God had given his people the Sabbath. Uh, he had codified it into the law of Moses. When the people came out of slavery in Egypt, God recognized that they needed a new way to live, a new worldview, new values. They needed to create a new society, and he wanted them to have one that reflected the kingdom of heaven. Uh, otherwise, they would be doomed to repeat the mistakes of Egypt. However, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus recognizes that the experience of Sabbath is not what God intended. It was not giving people freedom and rest. It was shackling them with a burden. And so Jesus speaks into this. Now, last week, we considered Jesus' invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. And Brian 
taught us that Jesus can give people a true experience of Sabbath. And so we're going to continue with that thought today. The Pharisees hear this and they don't like it. And so they come to Jesus with some concerns. Jesus' response will be instructive for us. Jesus gives us three reasons. Three reasons why we should follow his approach to the Sabbath and not the Pharisees. The first, Jesus is the Sabbath authority. Second, Jesus reveals the God of Sabbath. And third, something greater than the temple is here. So first, Jesus is the Sabbath authority. Jesus, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. I also thought this was sort of a crazy statement. I was like, look, I mean, they're just walking through the field. They're rubbing heads of grain, taking a little snack. What's the big deal, Pharisees? Well, I think we have this text, Exodus 31. Let's go to the next slide. This is really get to the meat of this. Anyone who desecrates it, that is the Sabbath, desecrates the Sabbath is to be put to death, period. Well, semicolon. (laughs) Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. For six days work is to be done, but on the seventh, the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Go on. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. Oh, he said it twice. I think he means it. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. Some translations say eternal covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days, oh, here it comes again. The Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. Put to death. Now, the Pharisees recognize the gravity and severity of the situation. They created, they combed the scriptures and they created 39 categories of work to be avoided on the Sabbath. 39. Sowing, reaping, cleaning, carrying, lifting, uh, all kinds of stuff. Harvesting grain is definitely work and should not be performed on the Sabbath. So I think the Pharisees have a legitimate concern here. Now, the Pharisees in their zeal to understand the law, to respect God, to keep the Sabbath holy. With this list, they took this list of 39 categories of work and they turned it into 613 laws restricting activities on the Sabbath so that the people would not inadvertently or accidentally disobey God's rules. I guess that's admirable. Um, The Pharisees in their own words said they wanted to draw a fence around the law. As if the law wasn't protective enough, that fence put. So by expanding the restrictions, no one would ever even come close to offending God on the Sabbath day. That's the thought. But what did this do? Did this lead the people into experience of Sabbath rest? Or did it load them down with a burden, an added burden? Who here can remember 613 things? Anyone? So let's look at Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Jesus responds first by um, referencing an excerpt from the life of David. Um, it, the scripture says this, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which, is not, which it is not lawful for him to eat or, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests. The situation is there is bread that's part of this um, Sabbath day worship. It's put out as an offering to God. At the end of the day, that bread is taken away, and the priests are allowed to eat it because they're consecrated. They've done all their washing and rituals, but regular people aren't allowed to eat it. 
At this moment in time, David is anointed to become king, but is not king. And the, the established authority of the day, King Saul, feels fairly threatened by this. And he is unjustly pursuing David's life. David has been revealed as the one whose heart is, he is a man whose heart is after God, right? Who will reveal God to the people rightly, which King Saul did not do because he disobeyed God. But Saul is trying to eliminate him. If you read between the lines, Jesus is fairly clever. Jesus, the one who truly reveals the Father, is being persecuted by the religious authorities of the day. I'll just throw that one out. That's for free. In this situation, like Saul, the Pharisees had claimed God's authority. They said, we're the ones who know the law of Moses. We're the authorities over the Sabbath. Jesus, you are breaking the Sabbath. But Jesus has a fuller understanding of the Sabbath than the Pharisees do. Because he's not narrowly defining the Sabbath by the laws. He is using the whole of Scripture to interpret the law. So he says, okay, I see your point, Pharisees, but let's reach outside that a little bit and see the fullness of God's revelation. In this instance, David comes to the priest and says, look, we're unjustly pursued. Uh, We're hungry. We're at our wits end. We need some help. And the priest says, all right, I'm going to give you this bread. And what does Jesus say to, to sum this up? He says, mercy I have desired and not sacrifice. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus is giving us a principle of scriptural interpretation and understanding of God because Jesus' understanding of the scriptures is greater. Jesus has more scriptural authority. Now, in the service of mercy, what Jesus is essentially saying is that this act, eating this bread, which would normally break the law and profane the Sabbath, has been redeemed in the mind of God. And in fact, more fully represents what the Sabbath is about than the law and its observation. Point Jesus. Now, the second example that Jesus gives is simple reasoning. He says, look, you guys are all fixated on these rules and regulations. What about the priests? The priests work every Sabbath. They get up early. They light the candles. They're pouring the oil. They're baking the bread. They're performing the sacrifices. How is it that the priests are profaning the Sabbath with all of this work? Well, Because the main focus of the Sabbath is not simply about stopping work. In fact, if the priest stopped working on the Sabbath, how would the people worship God? A law prohibiting the priest from working on the Sabbath, because, you know, Pharisees are so worried about work, would actually undermine all the Sabbath observations. It would, all worship in Israel would come to a halt on the Sabbath day. So if you're really just going to focus on the work, you're actually missing the point, Pharisees. Two points for Jesus. The Sabbath is a tool, a tool of relationship with God. Like my phone, which, you know, it's a nice phone. I mean, I like it and all that sort of thing. The reason I like my phone is not primarily because it's shiny and new and it's got all kinds of gadgets. I don't even know how to work half the stuff on there. It's because it serves a purpose. It serves my relationships. I use my phone to communicate with my loved ones. We send text messages, we talk, you know, videos going back and forth, little memes, funny stuff, all the, you know, updates and things like this. The phone serves relationship. So when I lose my phone, I'm not worried about losing my phone because I love my phone. I'm worried about when I misplace my phone, not being able to connect with the people I care about. 
And so in the same way, the Sabbath is meant to facilitate God's people's experience of God. And if the Sabbath becomes the emphasis, it would be like me loving my phone more than I love my wife. In the end, Jesus denies that the Pharisees even have the authority to be the arbiters of the Sabbath because they don't understand the Sabbath. He says to them, something greater than the temple is here, right? The center of Sabbath worship. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The, author- the final authority about the Sabbath. Now, this phrase, Lord of the Sabbath, honestly, how could any man be the Lord of the Sabbath? I mean, the Sabbath is God's Sabbath. In fact, the scriptures say, God says to Moses, <coughs> excuse me, they must obey my Sabbaths, not their Sabbaths, not these Sabbaths, my Sabbaths. The God who created the Sabbath is the Lord of the Sabbath. Ah, but Jesus reveals the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus reveals to us the Sabbath maker. In Genesis 2, the first mention of Sabbath is here. It says this, the heavens and the earth were finished. I think we have this scripture. All the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day. Maybe we don't. From all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work he had done in creation. Not only did God create the Sabbath, he governs the Sabbath. He delivers rules and regulations, instructions for Sabbath practice. And because the Hebrew God is at the center of all things Sabbath, we should expect that the Sabbath teaches us something about God. In fact, Paul writes in Romans, uh, he says, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. How has God made it plain? Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, next, maybe, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. That is the things that God made reveal to us God's eternal power and his divine nature. In the same way, his gift of the Sabbath tells us something about the giver. And to misunderstand the giver is to misunderstand the gift. So Jesus' dispute with the Pharisees is about the Sabbath is really a proxy war. right? It's a substitute battle. The, the, The bigger battle is like Jesus is essentially saying, you guys don't even know God. In fact, in another place, he says, um, you search the scriptures because you're looking for eternal life. But the scriptures testify about me. And in this way, the conflict over healing the man with the withered hand, I think, draws this into distinction. So let's look at that. Um, Verse 9. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit, will not reach in and pull it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. To substantiate his claim, contradicting the Pharisees, Jesus performs a sign. 
But not only any sign, a sign that embodies the true meaning of Sabbath, to restore what was lost. It's clear that in this text, the Pharisees do not see healing as allowable in the Sabbath. Healing, in fact, was on their list of 39 categories of work, not allowed on the Sabbath. Binding up wounds, um, making, applying a splint, all these sorts of things. Anything that you did that did not save life should wait until the Sabbath is over. That was their argument. Now, in fact, one rabbi's commentary on this actually claims that if a wall were to fall on a person on the Sabbath day, that you could provide enough care to ensure that they were not dying. And anything beyond that was too much work for the Sabbath day. That's right. Imagine the scenario. Your friend standing next to a wall, the bricks fall on top of him. Everyone in your community is rushing over to find the body there. I mean, they're pulling bricks off, frantically looking. Here's a hand. I found a hand. Everyone's coming over. An arm, the torso, head. Okay, oh, wait. The Pharisees come by. He's clearly breathing. You have to stop. You can come back at sundown when the Sabbath is over. I mean, these are the semantics that occupied the Pharisees' thinking about the issue. They would sacrifice the well-being of this person in order to protect the Sabbath. What does that say about the God that they serve? The God that they serve was a nitpicking, micromanaging, compassionless authority enacting a spiritual police state. This approach to God and Sabbath may have promoted physical rest. Rest for the body, but not rest for the soul. Not human flourishing. Not shalom. In contrast to this view, Jesus gives us a different view of the Father. Which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit, will not reach in and pull it out? In fact, once again, Jesus is looking outside of the uh, scriptural restrictions because actually in the law there were, um, there were instructions for how to treat your livestock on the Sabbath day. If you had an oxen who was tied up, the scripture says you should untie it so that it can roam freely and rest on the Sabbath day. If you have a donkey laden down with a burden, you must take it off so that the donkey would have rest on the Sabbath day. Well, how you treat your livestock reflects the God who loves you and your livestock. Interesting. And this same reasoning that Jesus uses, he has used in other places in Matthew. If God so clothes the lilies of the field, if God uh, so treats or provides for the birds of the air, will he not also do the same for you? Jesus is showing us a totally different view of the Father. Now this matters because, you know, I have an eight-year-old who <clears throat> loves cheese pizza. And I have a six-year-old who loves pepperoni but hates cheese. If I pass the pizza to the wrong way, I will not hear the end of it. <laughs> ah, but if I do something without having to be told or reminded, it facilitates relationship. It communicates that I'm listening and that I know each of my children and they are drawn to me. And in the same way, we want to approach the God as he is. Not the God we've made in our own minds. Because the God, the true God, when we know him and we have true relationship connection to him, then we experience his goodness. Many of us, because of misconceptions we have in our own minds about the nature of God, 
we are blocked by those misconceptions from actually experiencing God as he is and receiving his goodness into our lives as he wants to deliver it. And so the question of knowing the true nature and character of God as he reveals himself is critical for our faith. Jesus calls into question not only the pharisaical preoccupation with laws and rules, but their very understanding of the nature and person of Yahweh. Simply put, if if they don't understand the Sabbath maker, how can they understand the Sabbath? Third, something greater than the temple is here. Now, as if Jesus hasn't already said several incredibly outlandish things, Son of man, Lord of the Sabbath, and now something greater than the temple is here. Now, the temple, if you don't, you wouldn't maybe know this, but even a cursory reading of the Old Testament, the law, and the history of God's people will tell you that the temple is the greatest thing in the Jewish mind, second only to God. You shall have You know, the Lord, your God is one. You shall have no other gods before him. And then basically the temple is the place where God dwells. As we gain insight into the cultural context, then we start to see that Jesus' claims are not simply outlandish, but actually bordering on delusional. Unless, unless he truly is the son of man and the Lord of the Sabbath. The Jewish temple was opulent, magnificent. I don't know if you've ever traveled to Europe and seen these um, cathedrals, the Sistine Chapel, St. Paul's Cathedral. If you've ever been in a space that made you say, look, just took your breath away, how magnificent it was. I'm sure that the Jewish temple crushes them all. The temple um, completed by Solomon stood as a symbol of God's power and glory, authority, and Israel's special place in God's plan for a thousand years. For a thousand years. The one place on earth where you could go to encounter the true God was in Jerusalem. And the temple was meant to teach the people of God It's meant to show them God's glory in its expanse and its beauty. It was meant to show them his set-apartness and his holiness in the, the rituals and the restriction. Now, all of a sudden, this wandering, no name, wannabe rabbi from Nazareth thinks he can overthrow a thousand years of God's precedent? Ridiculous. Hebrews chapter eight tells us, that in in talking about the priests, it says, they, the priests, serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. That is that the temple is designed in a certain way to reveal things that are true in heaven, spiritual realities, but it only reveals them like a shadow. If I look at you and your shadow, I can tell a few things about you. I can tell that you're human, not a horse, not a bike. I can probably tell if you're male or female. I probably can't tell how tall you are, what your hair color is. 
I certainly don't know your personality. So the shadow gives you some information. Ah, but Jesus has come to give us more than a shadow, to tell us more about heaven and the one who lives there than what the temple can tell us. Now, interestingly, when we look at the temple, if you read about the temple, you would be struck by some things. Um, Certainly, it's organization. So there's like outer courts where some people are allowed, and there's inner courts where other people are allowed, and then there's the inner, inner space, the holy of holies, where only the high priest could go once a year. Um, And then there are all these decorations, finely embroidered, um, overlaid with gold. In fact, the gold is so opulent. Modern um, estimations of the amount of gold and wealth contained in the temple and used to build the temple are in excess of 50 billion U.S. dollars. That's billion with a B. Now, if you know Jay-Z, Jay-Z likes all black everything. God likes all gold everything. The altar is gold. The lampstands are gold. The basins are gold. The utensils are gold. The, everything is gold. In fact, if babies were allowed in the temple, they'd be wearing gold-plated diapers. Everything is gold. And I'm sure that the experience of stepping into that space would take your breath away because of, it's showing us God's glory. And uh, Hebrews 8, as we go on to the next verse, the writer says this, though. He says, the, the ministry that Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, that is the priests, as the covenant of which he is a mediator. Meaning that whatever is associated with the priests, all this gold, all this glory, Jesus brings more. Jesus fills up, in fact, our understanding of what the temple is about. Yeah, so I look at the temple and I see glory, but Jesus tells me or shows me the true extent of the glory of God. Not just a glory that takes my breath away, but a glory that saves, a glory that restores, a glory that gives life, a glory that breaks the chains. Jesus, in fact, replaces the temple. Jesus had an interaction with the woman at the well in John 4 where she tries to you know, skirt some of the sin issues, the messiness in her life. And she says, well, you know, I heard that um, you, know, you Jews claim that we have to worship at the temple. And Jesus says, you know what? That's true, but I'm going to tell you what's really coming. There will be a time when the temple is nothing, when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth, and they won't worship in Jerusalem at the temple or on this mountain. They will worship everywhere because the spirit will be everywhere. Jesus himself says, I am the truth, and the Holy Spirit will come, and together we will inaugurate a new era of worship, and worship at the temple will be no more. But there will be worship everywhere that the people of God go because the spirit of God is in them. In fact, you will become a temple. You and you and you and you become a temple and the glory lives inside. Paul says we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the power is from God and not from us. A new era Jesus is ushering in. He himself is the hinge point of history, of redemption history. And because Jesus has ascended to the Father and has authorized the distribution of the Holy Spirit to live within believers, we have become living stones, Peter says, built into a spiritual house for God. So if your thought about churches about going to a building, you've missed it. 
Jesus says, I am the new locus, the new focal point of worship, true worship, worship of God as he truly has been revealed, not a shadow, unlimited access to God for those who are in Christ. So yeah, Jesus sounds a little delusional if you don't understand that he really is the son of man and the Lord of Sabbath. So we've considered these three things. Jesus, Jesus is the Sabbath authority because he has a full understanding of God's plan for Sabbath. Jesus reveals the Sabbath maker, the one who says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus fulfills the temple. He becomes the new key to unlock access to God. So how are you responding to this today? What is your takeaway? Maybe you need to take the Sabbath a little bit more seriously. Maybe you've kind of thought, oh, you know, I'll take a little time off. I'll do a little of this, do a little of that. But are you really making space to experience this rest? Are you doing it regularly? Are you mining the Sabbath for all it's worth? There is spiritual gold in that Sabbath. It's release and deliverance. There's healing and restoration. Are you simply experiencing physical rest or have you been able to enter into soul rest? As modern people, our our, our assumption is, or our, our temptation probably is to think, oh, well, you know, we're not like those Pharisees. Like we haven't heaped up a bunch of rules. You know, I come to the church and we have spirit-filled worship. You know, the band is great and the teaching is riveting. You know, God is there. But I I want you to know that that the experience of hearing a sermon and singing great songs is not the extent of what God has for you. There is more for you than simply coming to the building and feeling lifted up. No, God wants to bring you into relationship. He wants to give you an experience. He wants to pour into and onto you an overwhelming flow of grace. But uh, Brian talked last week about the burdens that we carry. <clears throat> I think that the more, um, more common burden that modern people carry would be something like this. God's grace is too good. I'm not sure I can really receive it. That's a misunderstanding of the nature of God, actually, at its root. Because if you knew the father, the giver of Sabbath, the one who made it so that Adam's very first day on earth was Sabbath. Adam woke up on the seventh day and God didn't say, let's do some work. He said, Adam, enter into my rest. Come and celebrate all that I have done, all that I have done with me. Are you living from a place of rest? Or are you trying to get all the work done so that you can rest? That's backwards. That's not where Sabbath rest comes. That's not how to use or view Sabbath rest. God wants you to rest first so that you can then work rightly. And if you cannot put down the work, you cannot turn off the phone, you cannot stop looking at your finances long enough to say, God, I trust you to satisfy every need. If you cannot stop striving long enough to say, God, I trust that you have accepted me already. You have not entered into Sabbath rest. I invite you today to begin to enter into Sabbath 
rest. That's why Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because when you yoke up with Jesus as the second ox in your yoke, he is carrying you and the burden. Jesus presents to us the loving and gracious God who delights in mercy, not sacrifice. Yeah, sacrifice has its place, but mercy, that's the nature of God. That's the heart of God. Jesus has taught us that the nature of worship has changed forever. Do you see Jesus as the centerpiece of God's redemptive plan? That you don't need a building to to enter into God's rest? We're going to have a time of response. This week is our week of fasting and prayer. I would invite you to begin the week of fasting and prayer today. Last week, Brian said, uh, Jesus responds to need and faith. When we invite you forward for prayer, what we're saying is acknowledge your need and express your faith. Jesus wants to come to you. If you need soul rest, Jesus wants to come to you. If you have a physical need in your body, Jesus wants to heal your withered hand. That is how we experience Sabbath rest. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that in past times you spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days you have spoken to us through your Son, who himself is the exact imprint and very nature of God. Thank you, Jesus, that you are showing us the Father. I pray that today every person under the sound of my voice would see the Father in a new light, would experience his love, his grace, his compassion poured out for them, extended to them, and receive the invitation to come to Jesus and lay down their burdens. I pray, Lord God, that you would lead us into Sabbath rest. Amen.